0: Support for the following podcast comes from Hope Made Strong's training, Trauma-Informed Care for the Faith Community. This training is for church leaders that introduces how to build safe, healthy, and trauma-informed church communities. For just $5, join the training, download the toolkit, and have access to the resource library, offering dozens of books, online resources, and media links. The live training is in February 2020, but the replay and resources will remain accessible. Go to hopemadestrong.org slash trauma-informed for more information. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe and welcome to the Care Ministry podcast. On the show today, we'll be talking all about compassion fatigue and how this experience has likely impacted your personal life, your health and ministry. Compassion fatigue is that thing that has left you feeling exhausted, numb, detached and peopled out. But chances are you've had no idea what it was called or why this happens. We have a free assessment to measure your levels of compassion fatigue, burnout, and secondary trauma. If you go to hopemadestrong.org/slash quiz, answer the 30 multiple choice questions, your personal results will be sent to your inbox. I was six months pregnant with my first child, and I was hoping to enjoy sleeping in a bit on a rainy Sunday morning. But at 7 a.m., my husband shook me awake, anxious and worried our carbon monoxide detector was ringing its warning that the odorless toxic gas was building in our home. Unsure of what we should do, we opened all the windows and called the fire department. We were told to get out of the house immediately, but strangely, we were told to shut all the windows first. As I sat in the car in my PJs, my husband ran around the house closing all the windows that we had just opened. And it was within minutes that I heard the sound of fire trucks coming from only a few short miles away. They rolled up to our house, sirens ringing and waking all the other neighbors. And they asked me to sit in their truck to assess my oxygen levels. I watched them walk up to our home with a meter of some kind. And within seconds, the firefighters did a quick turn and suited up with full gas masks, and full-on suits. The levels measured were the highest that they've ever seen. Firefighters required a full protective gear to go into the home that I had just left, and I was so scared. What would have happened if my husband didn't wake up? How close was I to dying? Is my baby that's still forming inside me going to be okay? It was a small $15 alarm that saved our lives. We would have never known that an odorless toxic gas was building up in our home. And compassion fatigue is similar as it often goes unseen. It slowly builds in our life and its impacts are toxic. Without understanding what we're experiencing and having an alarm in place, the impacts of compassion fatigue could be devastating Compassion fatigue refers to the profound emotional and physical erosion that takes place when helpers are unable to refuel and regenerate. It's the gradual erosion of all the things that keep us connected to others in our caregiver role, our empathy, our hope, and our compassion, not only for others, but also for ourselves. How many can relate to this story? A person stops you after service and asks to meet with you. They're going through a difficult time within a relationship and they want to talk to you about it. Prior to meeting with that person, you spend some time in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. You spend an hour listening, empathizing, and encouraging them. You provide them with scriptures and offer strategies for them to resolve their issue. They say thank you and you part ways. A month later, they return. The process happens again and you support, guide, and advise. Another month, it repeats, but you notice that they never implement the counsel that you're giving them. You hear the yeah, buts, and they seem to continue this cycle over and over again. Do you notice how your response to them changes? Yeah, you're probably less empathetic and compassionate. Compassion fatigue impacts your ability to extend empathy to others, as well as your ability to have self-compassion and tend to your own well-being. It's been described as the cost of caring for others in emotional pain. It's not a result of weakness, sin, or failure, but it's an occupational hazard or a known risk of providing empathy to others. And just like our work changes day to day, levels of fatigue ebb and flow from one day to the next. And so can your feelings of compassion fatigue. People who work on a construction site wear a helmet to protect them from known work hazards, and compassion fatigue is a type of workplace hazard for caregivers. There are also protective measures for compassion fatigue, but they might not be what you would expect. After about 11 years working as a frontline clinician of a community mental health agency, I found myself struggling with compassion fatigue. And we're going to go through a few examples of common signs of compassion fatigue. I want to share a personal story that I think is common, and it highlights the symptom of having a lowered ability to have empathy for others. Like most couples, my husband and I would chat about our day in the evening. At the time, I was supporting those who are homeless and struggling with mental illness and addictions. So for obvious reasons, I didn't talk a lot about the details of my work. But my husband would share some very real challenges he was facing. And I had zero, I mean, zero empathy for him. I would say, I would be thinking, oh, I'm so sorry, your software crashed. Or you had client meetings that required you to work through lunch. Oh, you poor baby. (laughs) His problems seemed minimal in comparison to my homeless client with no food. So I struggled. It's embarrassing to say, but I really struggled to offer any support or even a sympathetic ear to him when he genuinely had a rough day. Not only do you lose empathy for others as a result of the intense stories you hear, but also the thousands of similar stories. For example, after the hundredth meeting uh, with someone who's been having a conflict with their teenager, you begin to have trouble focusing on the meetings. Now, externally, you're showing signs of empathy. You're nodding your head, you're leaning in, and using a soft voice. But internally, you're having a totally different conversation in your mind. You're thinking, oh yeah, I know where this is going. I've heard this hundreds of times. Well, with compassion fatigue, there's a shift in being able to focus on the meeting and your levels of authentic empathy and caring begins to change. These struggles are subtle, but they slowly become more overt as they did for me. But what is even more sneaky is a loss of empathy for yourself. The needs of others overshadow your own need for rest and refueling. Similarly, with my scare with carbon monoxide, compassion fatigue is sneaky. It often goes unnoticed until its impacts raise alarms. There are many impacts to compassion fatigue, and I'm going to share the 10 signs that I noticed in my life. And in the show notes, I will offer a full list of the symptoms along with that quiz to measure your levels of compassion fatigue, burnout, and secondary trauma. The quiz I offer is called a professional quality of life assessment, and it's used in research with professional caregivers who support a highly traumatized population. Therefore, the threshold for fatigue is quite high, but I still think it's relevant to ministry caregivers who are the regular go-to person for support. It took me months to realize that I was experiencing compassion fatigue. And it wasn't until I stopped and found healing that I realized how significant every area of my life was impacted. Let me save you a few steps and hopefully a few months of hardship and tell you the 10 signs of compassion fatigue that I didn't realize until afterwards my family was bearing the brunt of my weariness, but I didn't stop to tend to my well-being until my work was impacted. At work, I began to avoid clients and even had a sense of dread when I saw their names on my schedule. I would look the part of a caring, compassionate counselor, but on the inside, my eyes would be rolling and my empathy for those struggling was diminishing. Then one day I found myself silencing my client. I was redirecting the meeting to be focused on something less distressing as a protective mechanism for myself rather than focusing on the needs of the client. And this is really difficult for me to share because I know many of you who are listening are clinicians and you know how damaging that this behavior can be for recovery But I'm sharing this because I know that many of you are feeling the exact same way. The deluge of clients that's not going to stop anytime soon. And the dramatic increase in intensity of issues over the last few years has clinicians and ministry caregivers struggling to keep up. For me, when my work with clients was impacted was the wake up call that I was not well. This shook me as I have really strong values of client care and support, and I was part of the trauma-informed team, bringing awareness of compassion fatigue and trauma-informed practices to my workplace. But when I found myself diverting conversations, silencing clients, and avoiding those who have the most intense trauma, I finally sought out support. But for many months previously, my health, my relationships, my family and well-being were deteriorating as a result of compassion fatigue, and I didn't recognize it. So here are the 10 signs of compassion fatigue that I overlooked that greatly impacted my life outside of work. The first one is forgetfulness. Forgetting to shut off the coffee maker every once in a while is probably fairly normal, but my forgetfulness or being distracted moved to a whole different level when I started to miss appointments and I even forgot to pick my kids up from daycare more than once. This is a common sign of fatigue and it's often overlooked or minimized. Number two, sensitivity with emotionally charged stimuli. Welling up with emotion to a movie is normal, but sobbing at a Marvel movie in the theaters? I don't think that's normal. About six months before I went off of work, I found myself unable to stop crying. I would say almost sobbing at the trauma experienced by the superheroes. (laughs) I was so embarrassed, but I didn't really pay much attention to it. Now I see that it was a red flag telling me that I was experiencing compassion fatigue. Number three is problems with intimacy. After coming home from working a full day of supporting clients, caring for my children, and then prepping for the next day, the last thing I wanted to be was intimate with my spouse. I was exhausted and done, often thinking, please just leave me alone. I just want to relax. We didn't have any underlying marital problems, but it was the job that was the problem, completely depleting me of all energy. Also, those who support sexual abuse survivors may also find that their work intrudes on their ability to enjoy a healthy sexual relationship with their spouse. Number four, intrusive imagery. I can remember on vacation, my husband and I went for a hike up to the top of a cliff. And as we stood there looking out over the beauty, Aaron turned to me. He noticed that I was distracted and he asked, what are you thinking? And I casually said, I was wondering how many people have died by suicide by jumping off this cliff. This was obviously very disturbing to him, but I thought nothing of it. It's not unusual for images or memories that you are witness to hitch a ride with you and linger in your mind for a few days. But when they stay for a couple weeks, you are likely experiencing a secondary traumatic stress response. Number five is cynicism. I found myself becoming more cynical of new ideas. Whether it was a new staff at work wanting to improve staff morale or towards my children's enthusiasm for life, I would go along as a passive participant, but my willingness to be fun or silly was at an all-time low. Cynicism is common in high-stress environments, and I love what Laura Van Der Noot Lipsky writes, She says that cynicism is a sophisticated coping mechanism for dealing with anger and other intense feelings that we don't know how to manage. Number six is reduced ability to feel sympathy for family and friends. Like I mentioned before, I would come home from a day at work helping those who struggle with serious mental illness, addictions, and homelessness, and have little to no empathy for the struggles of my family and friends. I was numb and desensitized to what I perceived to be minor issues. This can have significant implications for relationships. For example, I was having a really hard time summoning the compassion for a friend who was in conflict with their family when I had a client who had just experienced some significant sexual abuse. Number seven is depression. I distinctly remember wondering if I was depressed. I am mental health clinician wondered if my inability to find joy, laugh, or have anticipation for an event that I would have otherwise been excited for was a result of depression. And I just brush this off as a stress response. But looking back at the lowered motivation, the tendency to self-isolate, and the consistent lowered mood, these were all markers that I was likely experiencing situational depression due to compassion fatigue. Now, I'm happy to say that this type of depression is not clinically long-standing. And I was able to find freedom once I addressed the underlying compassion fatigue. Number eight is avoiding social events. Thursday nights, these are my nights out. My kids know it, my husband knows it, and I know it. Thursdays, you can find me at book club or run club or just hanging out with some friends. But the deeper I fell into compassion fatigue, it was harder and harder for me to go out. I lost the motivation to be social and all I wanted to do was to be home in my comfy clothes and watch a movie or read a book. It was really out of character for me not to want to be with these people. This shift in behavior and avoidance of social events was a clear indication of compassion fatigue and that I minimized. Number nine, anger and irritability. Now, I often talk about how miserable I was towards my family, and I don't know if that's how they would describe me, but looking back, I'm ashamed at how short-tempered I was with my children, and I had almost no tolerance for anyone asking for my help. I was sensitive, and my fuse was short when life didn't run smoothly. I was able to hold it all together at work, but at home, where it was safe, I would often get frustrated with the smallest things, like my kids forgetting to take their lunches out of their backpacks. It seemed silly looking back on it, but it was real life for me at the time. Number 10 is physical exhaustion. This was a key marker for me. No matter how much rest I got or how much time away from work I had, I continued to feel exhausted. Or I started to feel better while on vacation. But after the first day back to work, I was already back to debilitating levels of exhaustion. This one is interesting because although I could recognize that I felt physically exhausted, I didn't initially recognize or realize how emotionally and mentally exhausted I was until I stopped and started to tend to my own needs. So those are my top 10 symptoms of compassion fatigue that I experienced, which deeply impacted my life, but I often minimized or overlooked. If you can identify with any of these symptoms, I would encourage you to speak to your doctor and a trusted family or friend. This was my first step in finding healing from compassion fatigue. I also invite you to check out the online course called Finding Hope in Helping by going to findinghopeinhelping.org. This is a comprehensive step-by-step guide in finding freedom from compassion fatigue for ministry leaders. When I think back on my time struggling with compassion fatigue, it took me a while to recognize what was happening, and I feel that it was similar to the firefighter's instructions to shut the windows before leaving the house. At first, their instructions confused me. You know, if there was toxic gas building, why wouldn't you want me to let the fresh air in? But I was told that while the open window offers fresh air to that room, with them open, they can't get an accurate reading of how dangerous the levels were in the house. When I would feel that my exhaustion and anger got to a crisis point, I would seek out temporary relief by taking a day off or connecting with a friend. But it masked the intensity of compassion fatigue and weariness that I was experiencing and the toxicity continued to build in other areas of my life if you're listening to this podcast and you identify with my story and feel that you might be experiencing compassion fatigue, I want to offer hope. Just because you are weary doesn't mean you're going to always be this way. Like it says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, the first step is recognizing that you are weary. Then the second is finding rest and the third is learning from Christ. Finding rest can look different for each person. For me, it was reconnecting with friends and going to counseling and really just slowing the pace of my life. So I want to encourage you that if you are identifying with this struggle, find rest, whatever rest that fits your needs. And if you feel that your compassion fatigues are high and you might need to prioritize this or find some more support, here are some three here are three options. Number 1, seek out counseling. A great resource that I recommend for ministry leaders is with Full Strength Network, as they have a network of Christian counselors around North America that specialize in supporting ministry leaders. The second option is looking into the course, Finding Hope and Helping. This is a course that I wrote for those who don't have access or feel they don't require that one-to-one counseling support. I like to give the analogy that counseling is like having a personal fitness trainer, and my course is like going to a fitness class. Someone is walking you through the steps, but you are leading your own work. And the third option is to check out the podcast on the seven keys to resilience and prioritize building these seven areas in your life. It's these seven keys that are the protective measures that can prevent compassion fatigue from building up in the first place. And I link to this podcast in the show notes. So many times I've heard caregivers say that they knew that something was wrong, but they just couldn't put a finger on what they were experiencing. Everything on the outside looked as though they had an idyllic life, but they continue to struggle with frustration, exhaustion, numbness, and just being peopled out. I hope that you're able to hear my story and find hope. Life serving others doesn't mean that you're going to live a life exhausted. Hey there, thanks for listening. I encourage you to put what you've heard into action today. How are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care both for yourself and for others in your church? And don't forget to check out those links at hopemadestrong.org episode 18. And if you want to be reminded when the episode goes live, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for connecting. Take care.